following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. We are continuing our course on self-knowledge and the discussion of the nature of consciousness, perception, awakening, and understanding that which we call our genuine identity, that which we call the being, the innermost, which the Muslims denominated Allah and the Christians as Christos, Christ. Likewise, the inner Buddha amongst the Asian esotericists or Jehovah amongst the Hebrews. This inner intelligence, this inner divinity, we could say Atman in Hinduism, the inner self, is beyond our terrestrial conceptions of self. And we seek to go beyond our current everyday understanding of who we are, to go deeper, to gain insight into who we are as a spirit, as a uh, inner Buddha, as a God. As Jesus of Nazareth taught, ye are gods, is it not said in the scripture? And we must learn to become that which in our very root we are. But our Uh, terrestrial life, our mistaken sense of self has hypnotized us from actualizing that truth and understanding that for ourselves from our experience. Our name, our language, our race, our culture, these things in themselves began in time and end in time. But that which is divine is beyond these terrestrial concepts. And so if we seek to understand that which is eternal, we must in turn confront and transform that which is illusory. We must be willing to make changes in our understanding of self and our perception. And so in this lecture, we're going to talk more in depth about consciousness. Last week, we discussed the nature of awakening. What does it mean to awaken? And we explained that awakening is to become aware of that divine potential. 
to awaken that uh, consciousness, that soul, that part of us which belongs to divinity. And we seek to uh, develop that based on conscious works and uh, practical exercises. So we mentioned uh, a technique we can use to develop that insight. And we have many available uh, throughout the literature we provide. In um, relation to this teaching of self-knowledge, we are practical. We do not rely on theory. We do not rely on belief. We do not rely on a creed, a concept, a flag. Instead, we base ourselves on practical knowledge, that which we verify, that which we know for a fact. We are scientific, we are methodical, and we seek to verify the teachings given in religion. To know that which Jesus of Nazareth, Buddha, Prophet Muhammad, Krishna, Moses taught. We seek to verify that for ourselves and to make it living and concrete. And so, uh, in the spirit of uh, universality, we've been discussing uh, the nature of self-knowledge as given in the Middle East. To emphasize that this knowledge is not only contingent upon the teachings of the Christians or the Buddhists or the uh, Kabbalists of Israel, but also the Muslim initiates, the Muslim teachers, who in the Middle East gave this doctrine known as Islam, which in Arabic means to submit. And so we teach the esoteric or hidden meaning of that tradition. And in the spirit of inclusivity and uh, taking an eclectic approach, we've been discussing this science in relation to the mystical doctrine of Sufism. So we're going to elaborate on this teaching more in depth. But uh, we seek to submit to our divine will, to our divinity, through practice, through a systematic discipline. And uh, the primary practice we engage with is meditation, as we'll be explaining and leading up to in this uh, introductory course. So we have uh, this image of a Muslim master who is kneeling in prayer. And likewise, we must learn to uh, develop that connection. And it's the connection with the divine that we seek. So what is consciousness? There are many definitions of this term. And in the basic sense, we think of consciousness as a physical state of awareness. To know that one is thinking, that one is feeling, and that one is acting. But consciousness in its uh, most profound sense is spiritual. It is the root of perception. It is the root of uh, who we are fundamentally. Consciousness does not pertain to thought. It is beyond thought. Consciousness does not pertain to emotion. It is beyond emotion. And consciousness is beyond the body but it uses the body. It is beyond impulse, instinct, sensation. When we sit to practice and to observe ourselves, observe our body as we practice that exercise of anapana, which is breath work, we become aware that thoughts emerge, sustain, and pass. Likewise, emotions emerge, sustain, and pass. And so also with the sensations of our physicality, like clouds or a mirage that 
disappears as we approach it. So if we learn to observe ourselves in this manner and to realize that we are not thought, that we are not emotion, we are not a body, the question remains as to what we are and our fundamental depth. Consciousness is not thought, as I mentioned, but it can use thought. Consciousness is not emotion, but it has its own profound sentiment, which is pure and divine. Its own longings, aspirations, fears, but not from an egotistical sense, of a crippling sense, of, as, that, as that word implies. Likewise, consciousness is not uh, the impulses that emerge within our psyche, such as a, a desire to go running or walking, or to... Uh, eat something, to read, to perform some type of physical activity. Consciousness emerges and is before these experiences emerge. And so when we develop that, we learn to perceive ourselves not as these elements, but something beyond that. And consciousness is not something dynamic. Our consciousness is something dynamic. It is not limited to thinking, concept, thesis, antithesis. Belief, disbelief. Likewise, consciousness is not limited to a feeling of like or dislike, of pleasure or pain, attraction or, uh, or, or lack of attraction. And the same with the body, to do or not to do. Consciousness is beyond these elements and possesses its own dynamism, its own dynamic um, qualities, which we need to experience and verify we begin to see as we observe ourselves that there are two types of consciousness. There's consciousness that is conditioned by thought, feeling, and will. Thought, feeling, and impulse. And there is consciousness that is, uh, is conditioned by those elements. There is a type of awareness involved with thinking, feeling, and acting. But in this dynamic and this very... Uh, uh, expansive science, we begin to see that consciousness cannot be limited just to those aspects that we commonly and currently experience. It's something beyond that. In Sufism, we say that uh, uh, the soul is known as nafs or nafas, which uh, in Arabic means breath. And the soul is like breath. It is like breathing, which is why when we practice anapana, awareness of our breathing and our body, we begin to become aware of not only our physicality, but our thinking, our feeling, and our body. And uh, the Sufis explain that nafas can be conditioned or unconditioned based on our will, what we do with it, how do we act, how do we behave. And uh, the unconditioned consciousness in this studies, in Gnostic psychology, we denominate with essence, the soul, that purity of, uh, of consciousness that belongs to God, that belongs to the stars, to Urania, the heavens. And then there's a subjective self, which uh, is all of our negative uh, qualities, such as fear, anger, resentment, pride, hate, anxiety, suspicion, and doubt greed, and that vast plethora of qualities that we denominate as uh, the ego in these studies, 
this sense of self, this I, me, who I am, what I believe in, who I consider myself to be. Ego in Latin means I, self. And uh, if we begin to observe ourselves, we see that we in turn are not oneself. Every thought, every feeling, every uh, impulse is a sense of self that emerges within the screen of our awareness and seeks to act, to define itself, to do, to fulfill its wants. It is desire. These desires, these different selves, are different senses of self-identity, different qualities, which are related to each other. As if uh, a train of thought, if we are aware of ourselves, we see that one memory brings about another, one thought brings about another, and through a chain of association, leads us into a state of slumber, of a lack of awareness. And it is the sleep of our unconditioned consciousness, our soul, which produces our suffering. If we learn to awaken that pure potentiality, that uh, pure consciousness is what grants us access to the divine mysteries. And it is that sense of consciousness that does not pertain to self, me, my. It is perception, but it is not self as we think of. Yes? Um. So the unconditioned, you said, is the extension of God itself. Yes. Um, And the conditioned consciousness is essentially anything that's an antithesis of that, anything that is masking that, anything that is uh, trying to define it. Yes. That conditioned consciousness is the adversary of God, which in Hebrew is shaitan, which is where we get the word Satan. And in this image, we see the angel Michael defeating the monster or the devil. This is a symbol of how the light of pure consciousness, which is not conditioned, defeats the tenebrous and negative self, which is, uh, which is uh, that sense of self or desire trapped or expressing as fear, hate, pride, vanity, and the seven deadly sins as we know of. So that conditioned self is, we call ego, or egos. It is desire that are in conflict with each other and which fight and combat one another for predominance in order to express itself and gain its, uh, the object of its desires. And so it is that precise sense of self or selves which we mistake for the divine which produces our suffering. Does anything come out of this fight? Is this fight... Well, you know, obviously not pointless because, you know, if the fight wasn't meant to happen, the fight wouldn't be happening. But I guess what comes out of it then, you know, if uh, Michael here is defeating the monster, you know, what is now attained or at least maybe not lost by the monster being defeated? So we have to understand. Excellent question. The thing we have to understand is that part of our divine consciousness is trapped within that conditioning. This is the myth of the genie of Aladdin's lamp. The genie, the genii, the jinn, the soul is encased, encapsulated, uh, and shelled within that negativity. And so we have to learn how to break those shells. 
break that conditioning so that the soul, which is trapped, can be liberated. And precisely this is the path of consciousness, the path of self-knowledge. We gain knowledge by defeating the dragon because that dragon has stolen the maiden. That maiden is our pure essence, our pure soul, which needs to be freed, which needs to be uh, conquered. And so uh, that is in order to attain the marriage of the, the knight with his maiden, the warrior with his uh, lady. So we state that uh, in this path of developing that pure consciousness, we can say that there are three types of soul, three stages, three demarcations, which are, are taught within the Quran, the holy book of the Muslims but also within the Sufi doctrine. We see that there is a carnal soul, there is a blaming soul, and then there's also a peaceful soul. In the beginning, the soul is carnal. It is enmeshed within passion, within desire, within uh, the negative product of mistaken action, encased in fear, and these uh, subjective elements. And so that carnal soul is uh, mentioned in the book of, uh, or in the surah of uh, Yusuf or Joseph, the 12th surah of the Quran, verse 53, where Joseph, who is uh, imprisoned by his own brothers, stated, Yet I do not absolve my own carnal soul, in Arabic, nafs al-amara, for the carnal soul indeed prompts men to evil, inasmuch, except inasmuch as my Lord has mercy. Indeed, my Lord is all-forgiving, all-merciful. So uh, there's also uh, a next gradation in which we recognize that we have a polluted soul because a soul that is enmeshed within hate and fear and the elements of suffering or elements that cause suffering, we are carnal of the flesh below, terrestrial, But there's a soul that knows how to reproach itself that is beginning to develop and change, which is beginning to conquer that lower uh, animal nature, we could say, those animal-like qualities of uh, conditioned consciousness. And in the Quran, this is uh, the the surah known as the resurrection, verse 2. And I swear by the self-blaming soul, the self-reproaching soul. Likewise, there is a third type of uh, gradation, which is the soul at peace referring to those beings who have fully perfected the consciousness. That conditioned consciousness has been purified. And now the consciousness is fully elaborated and expressed within the divine, has fully reunited with that source. So, O soul at peace, return to your Lord, pleased and pleasing. This is uh, Surah 89, verses 27 to 28. Likewise, the blaming self is known as nafsi lawama. And the soul at peace is nafs al-mutma'ina in Arabic. And so these are three stages of how the soul achieves perfection. And this is really the the goal of self-knowledge. We gain knowledge by comprehending our mistakes, changing them and not going back to them, but instead learning to transform the nature of our mind and those lower qualities, which obscure the very light of understanding in ourselves. And so uh, in relation to talking about consciousness, these qualities which really are the impetus and the consequences and produce the consequences uh, of uh, suffering, uh, 
these are the factors that we need to transform. And in the Principles of Sufism by Al-Kushari, he's a famous Sufi master, states the following about the lower self, the nafs or egos. The first part of the constitution of the nafs consists of things forbidden by the command of God or by respect for His majesty. The second of its two parts consists of trivialities and vilenesses of character in general. In particular, it is made up of pride, anger, hatred, envy, bad behavior, intolerance, and the other blameworthy characteristics. The worst and most difficult of the elements of the ego is its supposing that there is something good about itself, or that it has a right to some standing. This is why many people today, they deify and enthrone hate, pride, self, egotism. This quality is counted as secretly attributing equals to God. In the Muslim doctrine, they, the Quran speaks often about shirk, to not join partners with God. In the public sense, in the exoteric sense of the, of the religion, they're first to not worshipping other deities besides Allah, which is a very basic and superficial understanding. Instead, in a conscious sense, to not practice shirk, to practice the unity of God is to take all the parts of the soul that are trapped in those defects, to free them and unite them all with that light, with the divine. And anytime we act on fear, on gluttony, on resentment, that is performing shirk because the soul that belongs to God is trapped in that. And if we behave on that, if we enact that mistaken sense of self, it is perpetuating our suffering. And that's a form of, uh, we say, in a very strict sense, blasphemy, because the Lord wants to take all that soul that belongs to Him and bring it back to the source. Right, because it's His. And this is why the Bible says that God is a jealous, He is a jealous God. Mm-hmm. But let us talk more about how we can develop that unconditioned soul. So in Gnostic psychology, we refer to three brains. The word brain in the esoteric sense, refers to a machine. Not just the physical uh, cerebral matter in our, in our skull. A brain is a center of physiological and psychological activity. And so uh, we are commonly affiliated with the intellectual brain, which is where we process thought. By brain, we're not only referring to just the, the physical aspect of the soul, or the, of the body. We're referring also to uh, mechanisms in the soul. How the soul functions through the brain. Because mind is independent of the physical matter. The physical brain is merely a machine or tool that processes the thoughts of the mind, which beyond, exists beyond physical matter. Likewise, the emotional brain, we process thought, uh, emotion, sentiment, like, dislike, And the emotional brain is the physical manifestation in the heart, in its nervous centers, that process feeling. Likewise, we have a brain related to movement, instinct, and sexuality, which is impulse or will. And uh, we state that uh, the soul can express through these centers or these brains. These machines process forces that belong to the cosmos, and belong to our psyche. And we need to learn how to use those energies inherent in those centers in order to use them for our spiritual work. So uh, 
the Sufis also teach this, that the soul is not just independent from the body, but is expressed through the body. And that we should learn how to use our intellectual center, our emotional center, and our motor instinctive sexual center. These three brains, thought, feeling, and movement, in accordance with the divine will. So the lower consciousness or lower soul, the egos, can manifest in our thoughts, our feelings, or our actions. But the soul also can use this machine of the body to process superior thought, superior emotion, and superior action. And so the Sufis teach in Al-Risala, Principles of Sufism, the following. The whole cure of character is the abandonment and breaking of the ego through suffering hunger, thirst, and wakefulness, and through other sustained efforts, including the breakdown of strength, we could say egotistical strength, our attachments. For that is also part of the general abandonment of the ego. So how do we break the ego? How do we abandon the ego? We must learn to suffer hunger, thirst, and wakefulness. To be hungry as a psyche is to not feed our mind and our body, our impulses, with substances or impressions that will damage our psyche, that will deepen our state of suffering, such as watching uh, movies that are very violent, very uh, um, aggressive, with foul language. These elements enter the mind, the mind transforms them, processes them, and they become uh, further conditions of the psyche. We uh, feed our mind and our heart and our body, not just with physical food, but with what type of uh, experiences we surround ourselves with. And so divi- uh, divinity has established its own commandments in accordance with religion. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't commit adultery, don't commit fornication, whether it's through the Ten Commandments of Mo- uh, Moses or the Ten Meritorious and Non-Meritorious Actions of Buddhism. Each religion has its own structure or laws, commandments that can guide us to live a superior life. And the Sufis and the Muslims say that one should not eat that which is unlawful, which people think refers to halal, which is either kosher or halal, that's a good thing. But uh, psychologically, we need to become halal, holy, meaning to eat substances or to take in impressions that are going to be beneficial, such as good literature, good books, good music, things that will elevate our way of being. And so we have to suffer hunger, meaning when we begin to uh, restrain our mind, the ego becomes hungry. It fights. It wants to be fed. It wants to sustain itself. And likewise, thirst. Thirsty for impressions that would feed that pride or fear or anger, which we used to indulge in. And wakefulness, of course, is how we attain um, that uh, fasting of the soul, to not identify with those elements, to not let them carry one away, and to uh, learn to change them. So this implies that the ego is a subtle entity, seated in the physical body, which is the locus of blameworthy characteristics. The ruach, or you could say Hebrew ruach, the soul, is likewise a subtle entity seated in the body, which is the locus of praiseworthy characteristics. And the whole is subjugated one part to the other, and the totality is one human being. So this machine of the body and of the psyche can process good fuel or bad fuel, depending on what we take in and also uh, how we act. Which brings us to this next slide, 
an image that we repeat and go over in many lectures due to its uh, importance. In this graphic, we have the intersection of a horizontal and vertical beam. That horizontal line refers to life. On the left, we have our birth, followed by our childhood. Moving towards the right, we have uh, marriage, old age, sickness, and death. This horizontal line of life is mechanical. Birth and death process themselves cyclically. The soul goes beyond and uh, transmigrates, as we teach uh, in other lectures, in accordance with a Hindu doctrine. And so these elements that we consider to be ourself, as I mentioned, our language, my name, my culture, my race, my political beliefs, my ideology, these things come with time and they pass in time. They're, not tra they're transient, they're not eternal. And that is all demarcated by this horizontal line, which is the path that everybody follows. And uh, it is 100% mechanical, as I mentioned. People go through life without any type of spiritual longing or inquietude, a desire for something more. And those that do, sadly, fall into uh, habits and beliefs in order to encapsulate further with an ideology, a political system, a religion as a concept. These all belong to the horizontal beam. One can be very devout in one's religion, practice austerities, fulfill the commandments of Islam or Judaism or Buddhism, and yet have no cognizant experience of what those religions teach. One thing is the form, to adopt it as a behavior, but that does not denote knowledge, cognizance, or understanding. That which we want to develop in ourselves is this vertical path. This vertical beam refers to states of consciousness. Above, we have superior states of consciousness known as heavens, janat, or uh, nirvana, heavenly states of, or qualities of, of being. And then we have inferior states referring to that uh, conditioned lower consciousness known as nafs, egos, cells, which is the submerged aspect of this vertical beam. And as we talked about in the lecture on awakening, there are those who learn to awaken that free consciousness and ascend upward to heaven to the divine. But there are those also who knowingly feed their hatred and their fear and their pride and deepen their suffering and they descend down that vertical path. And so when we, uh, when we are uh, walking the spiritual path, we seek to become aware of the present instant. Everything is contingent upon our awareness of our moment. Who are we in this instant? What is passing through our mind? What is our emotional state? What uh, impulses are emerging within us? And uh, the primary si uh, foundation of meditative science is self-awareness, which many teachings uh, is very popular today. Awareness is uh, necessary and fundamental to accessing the very deep knowledge we seek. And so consciousness, self-observation, awareness of self, is found precisely in this moment where these two beams intersect. Our mechanical way of life intersecting with a spiritual way of life. And it has nothing to do with outward behavior, although it, it can be reflected by that. It refers to inner states of qualities of being, ways of being. And so what is the best way to worship that which is divine? Is to be aware of our present and to be aware of the presence of God. The 
word awareness in Arabic is muhadara, which comes from the root word hudur, meaning presence. So to be aware of uh, that superior quality of divinity it relates to uh, the presence of God, to be aware of that. So we call that self-remembering, to remember the divine in our consciousness. And that's something that we have to taste. No one can teach us this. It has to be verified and lived in ourselves. And we will make many mistakes and we will stumble and we will uh, commit errors. But uh, as the Quran teaches, God calls unto whomever he wills as he wills and will repeatedly bring us back to the present if we keep forgetting to observe ourselves. And that's the challenge, the battle we go through. In the beginning, we see that we are not aware. We're observing or then we get carried away by a memory or a preconception or or preoccupation of of work or family or or whatever. And that constantly pulls us and distracts us from the present moment. So the best act of worship is watchfulness of the moments, says Al-Wasiti from the book Principles of Sufism. That is, that the servant not look beyond his limit, nor contemplate anything other than his Lord, and not associate with anything other than his present moment. And so the aspect of not associating with anything other than the moment is obvious. Not to daydream, not to think about the future or the past. Neither should uh, one contemplate other than his Lord. Meaning, to not uh, identify with those negative subjective qualities. And when we see them emerge in our psyche, we don't act on them. We develop restraint. This is the self-blaming soul that is reproaching those lower qualities and is separating from them. And this does not refer to a zombie-like, nonchalant, or laconic state where one has no feeling. Instead, it is a very pure and expansive quality. Remembrance is, needs to, or needs to be made continuous, which is known as dhikr Allah, remembrance of God or invocation of God. Dhikr means remembrance in Arabic. And so the following teaching is given about remembrance by Al-Wasati. He was asked about the practice of remembrance and said, it is leaving the enclosed court of unconsciousness for the vast space of contemplation through the power of fearing him and the intensity of loving him. So contemplation is a very technical term. referring to cognizance, understanding, experience, witnessing, and we're if you're familiar with Islam, they pronounce the famous Shahida, which is, I give testimony that there is no God but God, and Allah, or Muhammad, is his prophet. Contemplation is Mushahida, to witness, to know. So a real, we could say a real Muslim is someone who has that experience, who knows God from meditation and from insight. And also we gain that understanding through fearing him and loving him. To fear it does not mean to the, the lower qualities of the ego. It is a type of reverence. The word fear can be synonymous with reverence, uh, respect for the teachings given by the divine so that we follow them and uh, really fear the consequences of behaving in a bad way. Also, we have the following verse from the Quran about the nature of remembrance. This is from the thunder, Surah, uh, Surah 13, verse 27. Truly God leads astray whomsoever he wills and guides to himself whosoever turns in repentance. Those who believe and whose hearts are at peace in the remembrance of God are not hearts at peace in the remembrance of God. Meaning to have that presence within oneself and to not stray from that. And that's something we develop progressively through a process. Which is illustrated by 
this uh, famous uh, artwork about the Plato's allegory of the cave. And so in the Republic, by Plato, who was a Gnostic initiate, Gnostic master, he taught the nature of four ways of consciousness, four states of consciousness. In uh, the famous uh, teaching, I can't remember what book from the Republic it is, but in this image we see a group of enchained people with their necks, hands, and legs caged or uh, chained against the wall, and they are left in darkness. They see across from them the shadows projected from a fire that's beyond the wall from which they are situated with their backs turned. There are people crossing back and forth before the fire carrying different objects, plates, pottery, different dishes, etc., which project through the, the fire in the cave to that, uh, those objects and project shadows against the wall. And in this myth, we find that someone, or a few people, very rarely so, are freed from their chains and are taken to face the fire behind the wall. And of course, this, this is a, a gradual uh, explanation about which some philosophers denominate the, the nature of finding the truth. But here we're going to explain how that relates to states of consciousness, and specifically in relation to the Greek mysteries. So someone is freed, and of course, when they face the fire, they're blinded. They cannot withstand the intensity of the light because they've been in shadow for so long. Afterward, they adjust. They begin to see precisely where the source of those shadows came from, whereas the people against the wall had no conception. They would only see shadows. They had many concepts and theories and beliefs about what those shadows represent, not knowing what's behind them, what's the source. Afterward, by the work of a guru, of a teacher, of a master or a prophet, this prisoner is taken outside of the cave, is dragged, forced out. And of course, this is a very uh, terrible experience, but one that is necessary, in which one has to let go of one's comforts of this cave. And finally, is let out into the expanse of the wilderness outside on the mountain. And from there, one witnesses the stars for the first time. And of course, the light is very difficult to adjust to, according to Socrates, Plato's teacher. Afterward, he sees the sun for the first time. The light and the expanse of the countryside. This is a symbol of states of consciousness, from states of sleep, of conditioned mind, to unconditioned mind. We see that the people in front of the, or in the shadows, are those who have the lowest state of consciousness. They have no self-awareness. They see shadows or nothing. And if the shadows, if they see shadows on the wall, there are... uh, we could say are the different beliefs, concepts, ideologies that people project in their mind on the screen of their understanding. And uh, we denominate that darkness, that uh, complete lack of understanding, or really the shadows in itself is called ikasia in Greek. Ikasia refers to barbarity, war, complete unconsciousness, a state of darkness, and a, a way of being which is very... Uh, we can see is exemplified by the violence that's occurring in the, today. We simply have to look at the news to see ikasia in action. But also there is a, a state known as pistis, which is when one sees those different shadows on the wall, which is the different beliefs, ideas. Ikasia means imagination. It's a type of sight, but in the darkness. It is like a nocturnal sight or unconsciousness. One is perceiving, but one isn't aware. That's the terrible irony. 
people who uh, fulfill acts of violence are not aware of the consequences, or if they are, they don't see it objectively. Therefore, they are perceiving imagination, ikasia, they see in the dark. Pistis is belief from the word pisteo. It is to have a concept, an idea, something that a person adheres to very diligently. And uh, those people in the cave, when they see the shadows, they firmly believe that the shadows are one way or they represent certain things according to their mind and they conflict and they argue with each other. So is um, maybe pistis a reaction to what you perceive? Yes, and all the concepts and beliefs that people have about uh, the mysteries of life and death, but which don't have any real substance. Beyond that is dianoia. When someone sees the fire, one has insight. Dianoia refers to uh, revision of belief, to change one's way of thinking. That is awakened consciousness. Notice that these first two states, ikasia and pistis, refer to the, dark, the darkness from the shadows, ignorance. The higher two states of consciousness, the unconditioned states of consciousness, refer to dianoia and nous, as we'll explain. Dianoia, uh, again, means imagination, but this is a, a conscious way of seeing, without filter, without obscuration. It is uh, perceiving uh, oneself, one's mind, one's heart, one's body, and perceiving the external world without any type of subjectivity, to see it clearly. In this state, we begin to revise our way of thinking, meaning we used to think we were one way, but then we see that we are not, through that act of observation. And daya, yes, and daya means to stand side to side thoroughly, to step aside from that which is subjective, to step aside the conditions of the mind. This is a way of a new way of seeing ourselves. This is awareness, self-observation. But when someone uh, escapes from the cave after that long trek and sees the sun for the first time, that is the state of noose. That is the light of the divine, fully unobstructed, fully manifest. That pure light, which the Gnostics call Christ, that intelligence or consciousness beyond limitation, which is cosmic. And uh, that sun is precisely the, the complete unconditioned mind, freedom, peace, pure insight or understanding. And so uh, one thing to mention is uh, in this graphic, we see some Latin. Lux venit in mundum ele dexeriunt, hominis machis tenebris quam lucem. Uh, instead, this is saying, because the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. So those who were in the cave are attached to their beliefs, the cage of the mind, the cave of the ego. And those who obtain freedom eventually have to come back down in order to teach others, to guide them and to show them the way, the truth, and the life. But of course, they are persecuted, stoned, poisoned, killed, murdered, etc. So we talk about levels of being, levels of consciousness, which is mapped out in this image. This is known as the tree of life, the Hebraic Kabbalah. And uh, the important thing to remember is that the word kabel in Hebrew means to receive, to receive knowledge. So while we'll study this, this image, this graphic of states of consciousness, levels of being, these in turn serve us to understand our experiences in meditation or out of the body in dream yoga. And so this tree of life is represented in the book of Genesis, which is a book of the Gnostics. This graphic shows us the heights of consciousness 
of Nous, noetic thought, which is that Son, that Trinity above, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which in Hebrew are known as Keter Chokmah Binah. Likewise, that matter, that energy, that consciousness descends into lower levels of matter, energy, and expression. The following triangle we have spirit, consciousness, and will. Chesed, Geberah, Tifereth in Hebrew. Likewise, we have the lower quaternary, this lower four spheres, mind, emotion, vitality, and physicality, referring to uh, Netzach, Hod, Yasod, and Tifereth. So this is a, an image that we study very deeply. We talk about very extensively and which we're only covering in synthesis here. But this is a map to help us understand consciousness, where we are, who we are. We talk a lot about mind, heart, and impulse, referring to these four lower spheres, Netzach, Chod, Yasod, our vitality, and our physical body. We are here. But we notice that in the present moment, mind, emotion, feeling, instinct, these things are manifest in this body. So this entire tree of life is not something foreign outside of us. It's inside. It's here with us, here and now. And we can experience those higher states even in our physical body. But of course, uh, with training, we learn to put the body in a physical state of rest. And then we go out in order to have, ascend those heavenly realms and to receive the knowledge we seek. And um, this image of the, the circle above, the three circles above, referring to Ein, Ein Sof, Ein Sof, Aor, in Hebrew meaning the nothingness, the limitless, in the limitless light. Again, that limitless light, this outer circle, is the sun that Plato referred to, the absolute, the good, the pure, which is what we aspire towards. And so we, we learn through beginning in this body how to ascend up this tree and to know, the, know that uh, light for ourselves. The following is given by Ibn Karbalai, in uh, his book, Raldat al-Janan. When the seeker realizes the station of contemplation, mushahida, or to witness, which is witnessing God's essence, the purity of that light, comprehending and encompassing all phenomena, does not your Lord suffice, since he is witness over all things? Surah 41, verse 53. He continually witnesses lights from the mundus invisibilis, the invisible world. So in meditation, when we begin to witness that truth, we begin to see images, dream experiences that are not subjective but objective, without subjective, without uh, obscuration in the mind. When we develop ourselves and when we realize that, that quality in ourselves, we begin to witness this tree of life in meditation, whether it's um, the top trinity or whatever aspect or sphere in which God seeks to teach us about which is us, ourselves, our true, our true nature. And in meditation, we can perceive lights, uh, clairvoyant images, qualities of perception that are beyond our physical senses. From such a mystic's perspective, this world and the hereafter are one and the same. This can only be realized by a vision that is all heart and spirit, not a view bound by mere mud and mire. So what is that view of heart and spirit? It is dianoia and nous. Dianoia meaning revision of beliefs. Uh, spiritual intellectual culture, synthetic understanding, revision of concepts, self-analysis, self-awareness, self-observation, self-understanding. Noose is purely illuminated intellect, su- uh, superior mind, God consciousness, in which we are one with that Lord in us, and one perceives through that light. 
But of course, that view of mud and mire pertains to Ikasia and Pistis, belief and ignorance. So, again, this image is referring to the heavens, what we aspire to. And the following quote, I think I mentioned previously, but I reemphasize because it's very poignant in terms of this understanding of self-knowledge. Wherever the delusion of yourself it appears, there's hell. Wherever you aren't, that's heaven. So who is this you we're referring to? Meaning uh, ego. When there's no conditioned mind, when there's no uh, subjective sense of self, when there is no fear, no pride, no gluttony, no lust, when there is only pure, uh, unconditioned soul, one can experience that heaven. It is a state of mind. This map also refers to places that we can visit in the dream state. These are dimensions, levels of being. But more importantly, it refers to who we are moment by moment. Qualities of, qualities of consciousness. And so we have to get out of the way. Meaning we as an ego need to be eliminated so that pure light can be extracted and brought back to the source. Which brings us to the next point about how we do so. In this image we have Adhan, which is called to prayer. And uh, the Muslims, they pray five times a day, which is a very beautiful teaching about the need to develop discipline in one's practices. Likewise, as they pray five times a day, in Gnosis we pray moment by moment. We do not limit ourselves to uh, just uh, particular moments in the day, although we do many exercises and practices and disciplines that we engage with. But prayer and awareness is moment by moment without respect to time, to be aware of the present. So how do we become aware? What do we need to do? The following is given by uh, Al-Jurari. He's a Sufi master. Again, uh, he synthesized in this very brief statement how we learn to develop and gain self-knowledge of the divine. Again, this is from uh, Al-Koshari's Principles of Sufism. He said that whoever does not establish awe of duty and vigilance in his relationship to God will not arrive at disclosure of the unseen or contemplation, mushahida, of the divine. So, what is this awe of duty? Reverence, respect, to feel the duty to engage with meditation and practices that are going to benefit our soul. Self-observation, self-remembering, and mantras, many exercises we teach in this tradition, we engage with in order to develop disclosure of the unseen, or sometimes referred to as unveiling. Because as we learn to work with positive forces, with mantra, sacred sounds, we invoke divine forces into our psyche in order to help us control the lower self. These energies in turn help us to awaken perception. And so meditation, different exercises of yoga we engage with, these in turn help us to expand our consciousness and feed it with the forces that are going to benefit us. And uh, that is awe of duty, to have that reverence and respect for the practices and to engage in them repeatedly, daily, so that we can tear the veil that covers the mysteries. That is the unveiling we seek and the witnessing of the divine in which we see beyond the veil of our subjective self in order to experience uh, 
the truth. And so we need energy to do so. Consciousness is empowered by forces, which we need to identify and understand. And so we were teaching in relation to the Kabbalah, those uh, ten spheres of ten modalities of consciousness, those are also forms of energy and matter. From the most subtle, from the top, to the most basic and material below. And so these forces help us when we learn to control them, to aid our spiritual life. And uh, we concluded in this image uh, Perseus having slain the Medusa. This is another myth uh, from Greece, very beautiful, that teaches how the hero, the soul, has to fight against the devil. How the, the master, the spiritual initiate or disciple, learns to overcome the ego, decapitates it, conquers it, destroys it. Precisely, Medusa's power is in its hypnotism, in its uh, conveying men into stone. Whenever the gaze or their eyes would lock and their gaze would meet, this is a symbol of how Medusa, the ego, the negative self, turns men into habitual creatures, into fragments of stone, symbolizing habits which become ingrained with experience and time. There are many people who have habits along, following that horizontal path of life we were discussing, and they never change them. And we all have certain qualities and habits that we um, engage with that are, uh, make us into uh, uh, figures of stone, something that's uh, immovable and, and frozen. Whereas the qualities of consciousness we seek to develop are free, liberated, unconditioned. So how does Perseus kill Medusa? In this myth, it's very beautifully taught. How he uses the, she- the reflection on the shield in order to perceive Medusa next to him and with his sword, cutting off its head. That uh, reflection refers to conscious perception, to perceive with conscious imagination, to see the ego without identifying with it, to see the quality of mind that needs to be changed and observing it and working on it and finally decapitating it, but not looking directly at the ego, not looking directly at the uh, defect itself and identifying with it because to feel oneself in that quality is to become that quality. Mm -hmm. We become what we think, as Buddha taught, mind precedes phenomena. And so we have to learn to not identify with those qualities, to observe them, to see them objectively. And with the sword of insight, of wisdom, represented by Manjushri's image of, the, of a Buddha wielding a sword and cutting through illusion with, a fi- with fire, uh, likewise we learn to conquer Medusa, which is the nafas, the lower, the nafs, the lower soul. So we included it also uh, an important quote from Samael and Vior in the modern Gnostic tradition. Wherever we direct attention, we expend creative energy. So when we identify with an ego, we give energy to it. But if we don't identify with it, we feed and empower our consciousness. And so we have to learn how do we direct attention? How do we direct our mind? How do we observe ourselves? How do we act? How do we think? How do we feel? Because every action produces a consequence. Every internal state produces an effect. And we have to learn to understand them. Cause and effect relationship. And this path of self-realization, the realization of the divine uh, truth within us, is precisely found by eliminating the undesirable elements of the mind. 
So we need to learn how do we spend our energy? How do we use our, uh, our intellectual energy? How do we use our emotional energy? How do we use our physical, vital, and uh, sexual energy, as we'll explain in relation to uh, teachings of Tantra and Buddhism? So again, this image of the Kabbalah, we're now discussing it in relation to forms of energy. So to elaborate on these spheres, we have physical energy below, and the first sphere counting up to the top of the middle, or the middle uh, triangle. Likewise, we have the second sphere, which is vital energy, followed by emotional or psychic force, followed by mental energy on the right, the fourth sphere, mind, intellect. Likewise, we have volitional or energy related to willpower, which is this fifth sphere. Likewise, we have conscious energy, which is what we deeply seek to access through meditation and through self-observation relating to the sixth sphere. And then we have the seventh sphere, which is spiritual energy, which is the divine. The spirit is God. The soul is acquired, but the spirit is, we say. Above that are higher forms of energy known as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, known as the first, second, and third logos, uh, Christ in synthesis. Not just, phys- not just uh, Jesus of Nazareth, but the energy he embodied. And so we have to learn how to use these energies and to recognize their usefulness in place. But to remember that these forces cannot be manipulated or used without consciousness, without the soul being in dominance of them. Which is why Samael and Vior wrote the following in The Great Rebellion. No matter how much we might increase our strictly mechanical energy, we will never awaken consciousness. No matter how much we might increase the vital forces within our own organism, we will never awaken consciousness. Many psychological, or you could say emotional processes, take place within us without any intervention from the consciousness. However great the disciplines of the mind might be, mental energy can never achieve the awakening of the diverse functions of the consciousness. Even if our willpower is multiplied infinitely, it can never bring about the awakening of the consciousness. All these types of energy are graded into different levels and dimensions, which have nothing to do with the consciousness. Consciousness can only be awakened through conscious work and upright efforts. So as I stated, we need to conserve our intellectual, emotional, and physical energy. We need these forces to exist. Someone who uh, has no vital energy is either asleep or uh, is dying, is sick. When the vitality leaves the body, that vital force or vital body, we could say, the, mat- the matter of the vehicle of energy, when it leaves the body, the physical body dies. It decays. We need uh, these forces in harmony, but the consciousness has to use them. So even if we multiply these forces, we perhaps get a lot of exercise physically. We do a lot of energetic exercises such as uh, yoga and mantras, meditation. We may engage with prayer with the heart. We may study a lot. These things in themselves are good, but they have to be done consciously. The soul has to be in, har- in command of them. So, for example, how you stated you could be um, living out or carrying out a doctrine as in like the rules of the church or you know the rituals and such, but not believing or knowing anything about that religion. So it'd be like you know basically doing that, like just living or, or working and doing. Uh, consciousness, but not doing it consciously. Well, you're like you know, doing the religious practices to build upon your spirituality. One needs, when one practices, one needs to practice as if uh, one's brushing one's teeth. Mm-hmm. We do it for our benefit, mm-hmm. not necessarily because we want to spend the time or enjoy it, mm-hmm. 
but uh, we do it because it's necessary to our hygiene. Likewise, our spiritual hygiene is dependent upon practice. And so we uh, learn gradually through experience how these exercises work, what energies it focuses on, and how we can use that energy consciously. So that's a skill we acquire through practice. And speaking of which, we always end these uh, series of lectures with an exercise we can engage with. In this uh, practice, we continue to observe and develop our self-analysis, self-awareness from moment to moment. And at the end of each day, recollect on uh, how conscious we were of our three brains, mind, emotion, and physicality. So another exercise you can engage with is another sacred mantra, sacred sound, which works with those forces, vibrations of energy. So every day you can sit in a comfortable posture, whether uh, upright in a chair or if you uh, are flexible and you enjoy the oriental style, you can sit in full lotus, half lotus, but not necessary. What's necessary is that we are fully relaxed. So you can sit in a chair, uh, whatever is more suitable and conducive to relaxing the body and not having any tension. Relax your mind, heart, and body, and afterward you can visualize within your brain a beautiful white light, followed by pronouncing a sacred mantra called Inri, which is uh, in Latin inscribed above the martyr of Calvary, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. It said, uh, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Uriarum. Uh, but it's a secret, secret mantra. Inri can also refer to Ignis Natura Renovator Integra, which in Latin means uh, fire renews nature incessantly. So that light and fire of the sun, which is mentioned in the myth of uh, Plato, the allegory of the cave, is a symbol of Christ, an energy, a force that we can incarnate, and that we seek to incarnate, that will aid us in purifying our psyche. And uh, this mantra works with that force. And it, it attracts energies to the brain to illuminate the mind. So we can uh, pronounce this mantra. It sounds you sound it in two syllables, like this, in, followed by another breath, and then a rolled R as in Spanish, If you notice, if you pronounce that and notice the vibration, it'll vibrate in the center of the brain. It'll stimulate the glands of the uh, the pineal and pituitary, especially the physical brain, the cerebrum, and fill it with a Christic force, energy, that can develop that insight we seek. Uh, I know for some people that letter can be hard, uh, the R, especially if you're not familiar with Spanish or don't speak Spanish, but uh, it's rolled on the tip of the tongue. And I'm sure if you go online and you know, Google, Google it, search it on YouTube, you can find some examples of how to practice that. But when you do these mantras, concentrate on the vibration in the body, in the mind, and visualize with eyes closed a light that fills the cerebrum and the cerebellum, the different centers of our, our, of our brain, of our mind, with light. You can do that for 30 minutes or 60 minutes, whatever is convenient for you. And that energy will help you to develop the awareness of that unconditioned consciousness. And so do you have any uh, questions? I have a question. Um, and this has been actually bothering me for at least the past week or so since the... Um you know, I don't know if you're aware of the, like, Alton Sterling shootings, like the police brutality yes. cases and such. Um, and something that's, like, become aware, or that I've become aware of recently is, like, you know, of course everyone has their own subjective, you know, realities. And within our subjective realities, or the battle of our soul, you know, we at least 
are given hope that we have the ability to overcome it, but obviously, you know, we are told through scripture that not everybody will. Is it inherent that these people, you know, the people who don't win, I guess, that battle, an internal battle of the soul, are they inherently, you know, I guess, uh, defective, if that makes sense? Like, is it that they are supposed to not win, or is it that they truly deep within themselves and that that you know I guess uh, that the unconditioned soul does the unconditioned soul just not have the uh, you know pure willingness to be re reunited is it that soul's desire to be separated possibly because I've you know gotten into lots of conversations with people you know um, because I believe that every single thing that we experience especially in the media is not more so to just you know help us know what's going on in the world, but to help us gain greater understanding within our own worlds by knowing about things that other people experience. So when I approach people about these subjects, I don't do it just so like, oh, did you know what happened? It's like, well, what do you know about you know what happened and how do you feel about it? Like, how does this change your reality or you know? The Quran teaches this beautifully. God calls to Himself whom He will. And those who have harmed themselves or who have gone astray, he punishes them in relation to their own behavior. So those in whom the longing to change is not existent, um, God cannot help. But uh, those who feel that longing to change, who feel that spark of conscience that exists within the unconditioned soul, have that potential to change. Mm -hmm. And there are many who've lost that potential. And the Quran speaks about this very extensively about uh, the Lord calling unto whom He will and those who go astray, who, who choose to deviate, He lets them go astray. And to not have that uh, guidance is to, be, um, is to really be uh, in, in affliction. Do they have satisfaction in dissatisfaction? Are they okay with where they end up? Even if you know, it seems like God is telling them to go a certain way, or at least giving them the option to go, but they choose to go a certain way. Are they, in the end, satisfied with that decision, as satisfied as someone who chooses to go? We always say that uh, the soul that uh, the soul always has its freedom mm -hmm. to choose what it wants. If it chooses to uh, deepen the conditioning conditioning of the psyche, then that is the nature of that soul, and that's what it wants. Mm -hmm. But those who feel uh, something that they need something more to change themselves and to transform uh, who they are and to follow that conscience that inspires them to approach a spirituality that uh, is the calling of God to want to change. And the Quran teaches, uh, I, I recommend, uh, in relation to that, that book is very uh, insightful mm -hmm. about uh, finding the will of divinity. And many people, they are only interested in deepening the cage, mm -hmm. strengthening the cage of the uh, that produces their suffering, mm -hmm. which is why John Milton, author of Paradise Lost, said, the mind is his own place and can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Um, oh, uh, about um, really the suffering of others and yes. others on the path. Um, because like you said, you know, God calls upon him. Uh, who he calls. In this process, you know, like you said, they once 
get out of the cave, they want others to get out of the cave too, so they have to go back into the cave right. in order to do so. But once they do, they're killed by the people who are, they're trying to save. Well, literally in the case of uh, Buddha and Jesus, that was the case. But uh, in, order to, in many cases, when someone teaches this type of knowledge, they may re- meet resistance or criticism mm-hmm. from others who don't uh, uh, hold those beliefs or don't really uh, seek to develop that. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I was referring to that, uh, our spirituality is really expanded and founded upon compassion. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily have to become a teacher. Instead, we can find ways to help humanity according to our disposition, okay. our ways. And so we learn to use our awakened consciousness to aid us in whatever particular aspect of life we've been placed in order to do that consciously. So if we have these different outlets, say, you know, some people like to help others actively, like go out into the community and like, you know, do, uh, help homeless people and stuff, and, but others like to do so with the law and politics. If we use all of the energy that, you know, we can put into different places, but into a finite, I guess, amount, but focused all of that energy towards those, are we as fulfilled as trying to do all of these different things, trying to, you know, help people in the community at the same time while trying to work in your career and also have a family? As as to what one has to do, that's ordained by the being. And uh, you may find from from experience in uh, meditation or in the dream state that you have a particular, in fact, maybe many particular things you need to do. Depends on uh, what you need to focus on. For me, I was uh, I received the experience to teach this knowledge many times by uh, the founder of this tradition, Samael Navior. I asked him about it many times in the astral plane, the internal worlds. Um, but also, there's other responsibilities to do that we are forced to engage with. Part of that awe of duty I mentioned from Al Jurari's statement in the, that Sufi book is that we take whatever occupation we're engaged with, whatever job we have, whatever family life we have, and we transform it consciously. We, we take that daily experience and use it for our spiritual benefit. So instead of reacting to life mechanically on that horizontal line, we are still engaged with life, accordance with cause and effect. Whatever we're born, who we're with, whatever responsibilities we have, we fulfill them, but even better in a very radical way, in a very transformative way, that becomes noticeable when we do so with consciousness that is not conditioned. Mm-hmm. And even if people may not really attribute us to being spiritual, they may say, well, that was, you know, he's really a kind person for, you know, or really benefited me or really did something of, of help. Mm-hmm. And we find our vocation, or really our divine calling, by learning to awaken. Mm-hmm. And we learn to see how we can engage with life with uh, rectitude and love as Samael and Vera wrote in The Perfect Matrimony. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Um, and lastly, when you said that you know people can make a heaven out of hell or a hell out of heaven, um, right. it's, it's, so, it's, like it's not essentially what you do or what, what makes up that you know, reality, but essentially what you get out of it and where you, um, yeah, what you get out of it and where you put it, I would say. So if you're going to be in any type of reality, if you're going to have a family and a career and all these other things, like you can, but as long as you do them in this type of way and you, you know, work towards this thing, it doesn't matter what makes up that reality. Well, spiritual life, spiritual awakening is, uh, is uh, you know, contingent, not only contingent about, you know, our obligations, but uh, 
Um, our spiritual life is not separate from our daily life. Our daily life is our initiation into a new way of being. Um, we learn to take whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, and we learn to do it consciously. That's how we learn, and that's how we benefit others. And when I refer to reality, I mean, I refer to uh, those higher grades of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Instead, we learn to take our physical daily life and make it spiritual, mm-hmm. and not something habitual or painful. Mm-hmm. Instead, we learn to uh, transform whatever occurrence we find ourselves in life and make it, uh, make it a benefit to humanity. Mm-hmm. That's really our, our goal. Right. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.